Podcast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. I'm John Lee here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years at the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, Hour 2 of the radio program. Just a reminder, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. We'll keep the discussion interactive like we always do. I'm going to jump right into an interview that I recorded with former Major League pitcher Tim Leary. And Tim Leary was the number one draft pick of the New York Mets. He ends up making his debut with the Mets, gets traded to the Milwaukee Brewers, gets traded again to the Los Angeles Dodgers where he wins a World Series, part of a very good pitching staff in 1988 with Oral Hirschheiser and John Tudor and Tim Belcher and those guys. And it ends up uh, going to a couple other teams, the Reds, the Yankees, puts himself together a very good career and has associated himself with a website that he is hoping to bring uh, scholarships involved to baseball players that excel in playing baseball, similar to the way... High school football players and basketball players end up getting scholarships. And obviously the thing is, you know, what is, happens to all the very good baseball players is, you know, you go to football, you go to basketball because you get a lot more attention and people notice you. And if you're a great baseball player in high school, nobody really looks at you the same way as the other athletes. So, you know, find a way to kind of sway some of the better baseball players to baseball as opposed to baseball and football. So hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former Major League pitcher with the Mets, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Milwaukee Brewers, the Cincinnati Reds. Tim Leary. Good afternoon. It's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Tim Leary. Tim, what's going on, man? Hey, how are you? Hey, no problem, man. No problem. Of course, uh, you know, Tim, you had a chance to, you know, pitch a you know, decent amount of time in the major leagues, almost 14 years. But, uh, you know, some people that have followed your career may not have noticed that, you know, you came up, you know, when you were drafted in the first round by the New York Mets. You're a pretty uh, highly touted prospect coming out, you know, in your first couple of years in the minors. Tell us a little bit about, you know, being drafted and then your, uh, you know, your early on, your path towards the big leagues. Well, uh, I always was a good player. Well, I played other positions and then I pitched at UCLA, kept getting better, pitched in the Summer League up in Alaska, pitched on Team USA. I was a first round player for the Mets, was MVP of the Texas League in 1980, made the major league team in 81 with the Mets, and then unfortunately my first major league start, I tore the forearm muscle and the pitching arm. Wrigley Field in the second inning, that sent me back, and then I was almost there, the strike happened, and then after the strike, I went to AAA, and then the structural league, and then Venezuela, and my shoulder started bothering me, and that time I got misdiagnosed and turned into a pitch nerve, and I really kind of lost out on almost five years of probably being in the majors from 81 through 85. But I hung in there, and then from 86 through 93, I was in the majors straight through. So I played on seven different teams, and such a way was on the Dodgers in 88, and then in the series, and I had my best season, so um, I you know, can't have any complaints about that. Yeah, no question about it, man. You end up coming up, you know, you talk about, you know, some trials and tribulations with the Mets, with the, you know, with the injuries and stuff like that. And, you know, during that time, you know, the Mets were kind of, uh, 
you know, kind of rebuilding, trying to get themselves to a point where they could get more competitive. And obviously, you know, they were eyeing arms like you and, you know, other other pitchers that were coming up in the organization. Did you did you sense that the team kind of had it together in regards to bringing up young pitchers at this time? Well, the way we started, I really thought things changed because I was back healthy and I was pitching in AAA. And the Mets made a great trade in getting Ronda Allen and Walter from the Rangers. And Blake uh, Kudden, they had drafted. And I think he struck out 300 in A ball that year as an 18 year old. They brought him up to our Triple A team. And here he was 18, making Triple A hitters look like little leaguers. Davey Johnson was our manager. And then in 84, Davey was the manager. And Kudden made the team. You end up getting traded to the Brewers, and you know, '85 you make a couple starts for Milwaukee, but 1986 is really when you have your first real chance. You make 30 starts that year. You're with the team the whole year. Tell us a little bit about how that season went and how it felt to kind of just finally be part of a major league rotation. Oh, well, it was crazy because I was on a team that didn't have possession guys from '82. We were a team that probably went out on the water, keep a super, been on the league. certainly changed in 1988 you know you touched on it at the you know the, the beginning that you know for some reason you know everything just kind of clicked for you you know you pitched to a sub three ERA 
you won 17 games, you had 180 strikeouts, and obviously a team that ends up winning the World Series. What, in your mind, was the biggest difference in you kind of getting everything together in the 
you know, to the point where they were in the early part of the 80s up until 83 and 85. And there was a lot of uh, team moves that were made that offseason, and he touched on a couple of them earlier, the trade of Bob Welch, the acquisition of Kirk Gibson. Um, did you ever get a sense, or if you did, when when did you get a sense that a team really had something special going on? Because, you know, this was coming off kind of a down season a year before, and then all of a sudden things kind of clicked, and, you know, pretty much the end of the first half into the second half of the 88 season. Um, I mean, Hershiser and Gibson were the key. I mean, Hershiser was as good of an ace pitcher as there probably ever has been, especially the second half and through the postseason. And Gibson was as good a team leader as you could have as he brought everyone else up. And then he had other energy guys like Steve Sachs and Nicky Hatcher and uh, Rick Dempsey. We, we just had a good mix of you know, starters and extra men, starting pitchers. Uh, Tommy was great at, you know, mo- not just motivating, but bringing people all on the same page. Uh, and, you know, he's a very emotional manager. But he's a Hall of Fame manager because he's an emotional manager. And that team became really gelled after the Hulkster break. We had five games in three days in Chicago. I pitched four starts on one road trip after the All-Star game because we needed to win. And, uh, you know, we ended up winning. The season was good numbers, over 90 wins, but we were still three underdogs in the playoffs and World Series. And that's the maze of so much more offense. But, you know, when it comes down to it, I'm going to put you with your front card. And you know, after winning game one and beating their ace and their ace reliever, it really put the A's in the hole because then they had to face her charger the next day and game five. So there's a lot of emotion, there's strategy, there's chemistry, and you see it every year in every sport. You know, you gel at the right time. This year the Dodgers gelled a little too early, I think, you know. Um, but they, they were so excited all year. But they just didn't quite have it toward the end. The two guys that were young did great, got a little healthy, and the older guys got a little hurt. Uh, but, you know, the team that was supposed to win this year won. It was uh, another great baseball season. Yeah, no question. Uh, you know, and you go back to even the last couple seasons, they've been definitely fun to watch. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Tim Leary. Now, you know, after, after you know, the season of 88, you end up uh, coming back to the Dodgers in 89, you get traded over to the Reds. And, you know, a deal that ends up sending Cal Daniels and Lenny Harris to the Dodgers. And, you know, right, right after that season, you end up going over to the Yankees. Now, tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience with the Yankees, you know, about, you know, you, you know playing for George Steinbrenner and obviously the, the mantra always being about, you know, win now, win now. Did you ever get that sense of that while you were pitching with the Yankees? Well... I actually, I like the Reds, and I got traded there because they had the Lingerhead and John Tudor had come back from elbow surgery, so we had an extra shot at the Dodgers. So really, for me, it was disheartening to get traded away from a hometown team that they were rooting for. But the Reds were, you know, the more of winning the World Series in four straight 
got traded away, so that was disappointing. And then when it got to the Yankees, Kurt Steinbrenner got suspended for not, I think, for not donating to Winfield's charity. So I was on a Yankee team that was not particularly good because we had a lot of young guys. We didn't, there was nobody going out buying free agents. So 1991, were were tough. I mean, I remember the day. And you can halfway through the Navy season, you know, I'd have seven out of wins by now. Well, that was probably up a three or four win level. You're going to play around. So it was unfortunate, but it happened to me then. And then I kind of lost it a little bit after 90. Uh, I think when you get into your early 30s, in you know, the power picture, you start moving your fastball a little bit. It's difficult to change be something that you're that you've never been. And I started, you know, struggling a little bit. Got it back to some extent in ninety three with the managers. But unfortunately you can't play forever. Yeah, no problem. But I got into coaching after that, which I know a lot of people didn't call it coaching. And now I'm now on the private side. Politics too much politics. Yeah, now, you know, you end up, you know, in the 94 season, you pitch a couple games with Texas, you struggled a little bit. Um, now, did you did you kind of choose choose at that point to kind of go out on your own, or did anything have to do with uh, the ensuing strike of that year? Uh, what year, 90? 94. Uh, 94, I played down to Japan, but it was one I ended up going to spring train with the X-Zone. I had a pending, but I had a pending fight. can find it, and a little bit about what it's about and what, what you're looking to do. Eventually, do uh, 
had to fill out financial aid forms because there are less baseball scholarships these days because of Battle Nine. And a lot of athletes that used to play baseball, basketball, and football are now staying in just football and basketball. And there's a lot of high school coaches who want to stay in one sport and make more scholarships in those sports. So we want to show people, you know, how there is a way to go to college and play baseball and have a paid for if you are low income. So it's baseball has been good to coach at heart. So, you know, we're going to try and sort of reinvent the wheel with a somewhat of a, like a portable of the academy idea. No, that actually sounds pretty good, man. And listen, Tim, I want to thank you for having some time. Best of luck with what you're doing with the, you know, the organization and everything. And, uh, you know, let's stay in touch, and maybe I can speak to you sometime soon. Okay, good. Get back to you in a few months, and we'll update you on our foundation. Thank you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot with Tim Leary. Of course, tweet at me, at John underscore PLA, anything you want to talk about in regards to Major League Baseball. We're going to take our first break at a program come back with some bases empty blog we're going to go over uh you know some expansion drafts a couple other things that i've written about over the past couple weeks and we'll be back with a lot more stuff going on passball show mtr radio network back after this i always wanted to work in sports kind of got sidetracked in college then ended up in a job and, and realized i wasn't happy doing what i was doing researched csb and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We place thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Taste is empty blog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Taste empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Oh, yeah, welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, we're in the Bases Empty blog section of this program. Of course, check that out, johnpielli.com. Bases Empty blog is, of course, part of my website. My articles can also be found on mtrmedia.com. Just check out mtrmedia.com slash johnpielli. Uh, before we get into the expansion draft, I wrote an article about the Mets Black Friday value list, and it's the third annual Mets Black Friday list. And 
you know, I think, you know, you would hope that the Mets would use some of the money, like I suggested in the first hour, to uh, actually invest in good players. And that's trying to get a guy, you know, off the scrap heap that has a huge upside that doesn't really cost you anything if it doesn't work out. But listen, let's say it ends up going that way. And, you know, it's a possibility. You look at Mets needs that they have at shortstop, backup catcher, starting pitcher, relief pitching. And, you know, for a shortstop, obviously the drop-off after the top available shortstops is significant. But there's guys like Jamie Carroll, Alexei Casilla, Miguel Tejada as a possibility. All guys that could come back on either minor league contract or limited guarantee money. But the guy that I would choose would might be able to spend a couple more bucks, maybe 2-3 million for the 2014 season. And I would take Clint Barmas from the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's a free agent. Uh, obviously has done a pretty good job defensively. Probably isn't the offensive player the Colorado Rockies thought he would be when they first brought him up. But I think he's a guy that you could bring in, you know, a low money deal and could kind of outperform what it is, the dollars that are being thrown at him. Backup catcher, and obviously not a priority for the Mets. You know that there's some other interesting guys that you would you would certainly think about. And the guy that I had on my target, on my board, was Will Nieves, who just signed as a free agent with another team. But a guy like Chris Snyder is a possibility. And, of course, you know the Mets have Anthony Recker and Juan Centeno, who are probably going to battle for the backup catcher job as, as, as we speak. But looking at starting pitching, um, you know, there's guys like John Garland, Brett Myers, of course, Daisuke Matsuzaku pitched with the Mets last year. Um, other alternatives are possibly Clayton Richard or Jeff Carstens. But I would center around guys like Jeff Neiman from Tampa Bay and James McDonald with the Pittsburgh Pirates, guys who, you know, have had some success. Neiman coming off of an arm surgery may not be ready to start the 2014 season, but certainly has a huge upside. McDonald was one of the best pitchers on the Pittsburgh Pirates staff a couple of years ago and obviously fell off this past season. Both could come in for a very low base salary with some incentives and could very quietly help the Mets rotation in the fourth and fifth spots. But in regards to relief pitching, of course, the Mets have been linked to Alfredo Aceves. Guys like Manny Corpus, Matt Guerrier, and Chad Godin could all be invited to camp. But here's my suggestion. I would go and get some incentive-laden deals to guys like Eric O'Flaherty, Joel Hanrahan, Ryan Madsen. All three can probably not be expected to start the season on a 2014 Mets. But imagine if they're brought in with low base salaries, incentive performance you know, bonuses. Uh, certainly could make the Mets bullpen going from something that we're not really talking about to something that could be one of the top in all of Major League Baseball. And you know, with Hanrahan possibly being the closer, Bobby Parnell still there, O'Flaherty, and of course, Ryan Madsen, if they could all help out in a certain way, the Mets bullpen looks a lot different and a lot better than it has in many years. Obviously, you look at the way things are set up, um, you know, obviously outfield. The Mets outfield will be the number one priority. There's guys out there like Quinton Berry, Mark Tehan, Brennan Bosch, and even a possible reunion with Andy Chavez. I would certainly consider Grady Sizemore if there's a possibility that he could be a major league player again. Obviously, that means if he's going to be healthy. Shelly Duncan's a possibility, but it's unlikely he can be an everyday major league player. So if I had a choice, and I'm obviously talking about the dollar rack, I would choose Tyler Colvin, who came from the Colorado Rockies last couple seasons, had a very good 2012 season, spent most of 2013 in the minor leagues, 
and Franklin Gutierrez from the Seattle Mariners, who's a guy who certainly shows that he could play some baseball. He's a very good defense and an excellent defensive center fielder and can hit a little bit, but has had a hard time staying healthy. I would take chances on those guys. And if you look at the Mets offseason and you summarize it from these dollar rack deals, you, you, you get Tyler Colvin, Franklin Gutierrez, Clint Barmas, uh, Yaneski Betancourt. Uh, James McDonald, Jeff Neiman, Hanrahan, Madsen, and O'Flaherty, it doesn't excite very many people. But I'd take my chances with these players than simply just roll over that ridiculous roster that the Mets have had over the last couple seasons. So listen, the right answer is for the Mets to spend money, absolutely. But what if they don't want to? And I think this gives the Mets some options with some type of players that could possibly help them out. Um, on Thanksgiving, I got a chance to look back at the career of Turkey Stearns, who was a Negro Leagues player, had a very good career, and got himself into Baseball Hall of Fame in, I believe, 2000, if I'm not mistaken, where he finally got enshrined in Baseball's Hall of Fame 21 years after his passing. But here's a guy that had a very good career, played mostly for the Detroit Stars and you know the, a couple independent teams, ended up in Kansas City, Chicago, Philadelphia and moved himself around. He hit 176 home runs, and that's 50 more than Mule Suttles, who is considered the all-time home run champion in Negro League history. Now, there's some disputed numbers in regards to Josh Gibson. How many games did he play? How many games were recorded? And they say this is a guy that hit something around 800 home runs over the course of his career playing in all different leagues. So I don't want to take credit away from Josh Gibson, but we do got to acknowledge Turkey Stearns, who was a phenomenal baseball player, belongs in baseball's Hall of Fame, his real name, Norman Thomas Stearns, and he lived from 1901 till his death in 1979, and of course was known as Turkey because of the way he ran, but was a very good base runner in spite of his nickname when they called him Turkey. But, you know, Turkey Stearns is certainly a guy you should think about around Thanksgiving. You know, you're, you're out there with the turkey and, you know, acknowledge yourself a great Negro Leagues player that deserves a little more credit than he's gotten over the history of Major League Baseball. So once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, the Expansion Draft Series. I'm going to breeze right through real quick because I've gotten through the four most recent teams. And in 1997, of course, before the 1998 season, the Tampa Bay Rays and the Arizona Diamondbacks picked, you know, their players from other teams. The way it was set up, obviously, was that you had a chance over a series of rounds to pick players in different leagues. And the Devil Rays, of course, they were known as the Devil Rays before recently becoming the Tampa Bay Rays, got a chance to select their first player, and it was Tony Saunders. They ended up taking guys like Quentin McCracken, Bobby Abreu, um, Miguel Cairo, Rich Butler, Bobby Smith, Jason Johnson, Dimitri Young, Esteban Yan, and Mike DeFelice with their first 10 picks. Other noticeable first-round picks, Bubba Trammell, Andy Sheets, Dennis Springer, and their first selection of the second round was Brian Bowringer. They got guys like Kevin Sefcik, Jim Messier, Brian Recar, and A's prospect Steve Cox. The first round, third round got them Randy Wynn and Brooke Kieschnick and Herbert Perry. And Among trades they made, they sent Abreu to the Phillies for Kevin Stocker to shortstop. They traded Sheets and Bowringer to the Padres for John Flaherty. They sent Young back to the Rays, Dimitri Young for Mike Kelly, and they also purchased Fred McGriff. So their lineup ended up starting out there with Quinton McCracken, Miguel Cairo, free agent Wade Boggs, Fred McGriff, Mike Kelly, Paul Sorrento, who was another free agent acquisition, 
John Flaherty, another free agent in Dave Martinez, Kevin Stocker, and free agent pitcher Wilson Alvarez. The, Ra the Devil Rays under new manager Larry Rothschild would finish last place in the AL East with a record of 63-99. and 99. Of course, that brings you over to the Arizona Diamondbacks, who end up with their first selection, taking Brian Anderson from the Indians. Also, Jeff Supan, Gabe Alvarez, Jorge Fabregas, Kareem Garcia, Edwin Diaz, Corey Lytle, Joel Adamson, among players that end up uh, being taken early with them. Also, Tom Martin, Omar Dahl, Scott Winchester, uh, David DeLucci, Damian Miller, Hector Carrasco, Hanley Frias, and then uh, Joe Randa, Russ Springer, Kelly Stinnett, Chuck McElroy, and Marty Jansen. They follow up the draft by signing Jay Bell to a multi-year deal. They traded Jesus Mar Martinez, who was taken with the second pick of the third round from the Dodgers, to the Marlins for Devon White. They traded... Uh, Alvarez, Randa, and right-hand pitcher Matt Drews to, for, to Detroit for Travis Fryman. They traded Fryman and Tom Martin to the Cleveland Indians for Matt Williams. They also signed free agent pitcher Andy Bennis. Here's their opening day lineup. Devon White, Jay Bell, Travis Lee, Matt Williams, Brent Breedy, Kareem Garcia, Jorge Fabregas, Edwin Diaz, and Andy Bennis. Buck Showalter led the Diamondbacks to a 65-97 and record, last place in the National League West, they had the last laugh as three years later, in their fourth season, they became the earliest MLB expansion team to win a World Series championship. So, you know, we touched on the Rays and the Diamondbacks today. You know, next week we'll get into the Rockies and Marlins and some of the other teams uh, in prior expansion drafts. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take a break, finish up the program with an interview I recorded with longtime uh, Montreal Expos and Florida and Miami Marlins broadcaster and Ford C. Frick winner in 2011, Dave Van Horn, right after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is a family. Through one of the toughest years in my life, my ACS family stood beside me. My teachers were loving and supportive, and my friends shined God's love in different ways to make each day brighter. Atlanta Christian has a nurturing academic environment and is a second home to me. I am thankful for the school and family with which God has blessed me. Join us for Open House every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7, 24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station, MTR. 
Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. So now, without further ado, I'm going to play my interview with the 2011 Ford C. Frick winner, longtime broadcaster, the original broadcaster in the beginning of the Montreal Expos in 1969, stayed there until 2000, where he became the broadcaster of the Florida Marlins and, of course, now the Miami Marlins, coming back for his 47th season in the broadcast booth. And that, of course, is Dave Van Horn. Good afternoon, it's John Pielli. I'm here with longtime Major League Baseball broadcaster Dave Van Horn. Dave, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Pleasure, John. Good to talk to you. Absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, of course, you got a long career in the broadcast booth, you know, many, many years with a couple different teams. Uh, you know, first question I really want to ask you is, you know, how, how did you end up getting started into, you know, broadcasting and stuff like that? Well, I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version. Of course, uh, uh, when I left, uh, graduated from high school, I went, uh, that was in uh, Pennsylvania, my hometown. And uh, I went there and went to a small sidewalk campus college in Richmond, Virginia, known as Richmond Professional Institute. You would know it today as BCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I, I went to RBI, and I spent two years there. I was in the theater arts department and the radio television department. And when I got out of high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do as far as my career was concerned, or even just the, the simple things in life of making a living and, and continuing my education. But one thing led to another, and I got a, uh, a part-time job in radio uh, while I was in Richmond, uh, hosting a weekly show. They wanted a college student to host uh, this weekly music show, and I did. And that kind of started my career. That led to a full-time job, and I wound up spending 11 years in Virginia, in Richmond and in Roanoke, uh, working as a as a disc jockey at first, then a staff announcer, and that led to the opportunity to get into sports broadcasting. It began with high school football broadcasts, that led to basketball, uh, that led to college basketball, and then eventually an opportunity to do baseball. So it was uh, it was a ride for about 11 years in uh, Virginia that took me from not knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, to an opportunity to do baseball in Richmond when the Richmond Braves uh, moved to town, and that was in 1966. And after about uh, 30 or 60 days into that first baseball season, I knew exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and, and it worked out for me. Yeah, absolutely, man. And of course, you know, you found a niche, you stuck with it for a long time. Now, you know, when you're when you're talking about, you know, like you know, getting getting into radio, doing, uh, let's say, different sports and stuff like that. Did you have a favorite sport at the time, or was it just the broadcasting that you enjoyed doing? I liked all sports, but I was attracted to play by play. Um, I, I, I followed all sports, uh, uh, both in high school and uh, and collegiately. But, uh, but I was attracted to the opportunity to do play-by-play. And, uh, and I got my first play-by-play job by accident in uh, Roanoke. They had a, uh, an announcer that was doing the high school schedule of games that the station carried. And uh, he left the station abruptly before uh, the high school season got underway, just about a week before the first game was scheduled. And the uh, general manager, 
tell you, you know, you end up in, uh, you know, before the 1969 season getting a gig for, you know, the expansion Montreal Expos. Yeah, that must have been a pretty good experience. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what got you in, into that and your first reaction of, you know, being a you know, play-by-play guy for the Montreal Expos. Well, it was uh, it was interesting to, to me as I look back on it in this regard because I I knew after uh, as I said before just a couple of months of doing minor league baseball, Triple A baseball, and the international league, the Richmond Braves games in 1967. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to specialize in baseball. I continued to do football and basketball until I got my first big league job, and then I did with many of the other sports after that, just baseball. But uh, I had applied several times uh, for baseball openings, uh, one in Washington, D.C., when the Senators were uh, changing their broadcast crew around, one in uh, Baltimore when the Orioles were looking for a broadcaster. Uh, I had applied for several jobs and, uh, and, and didn't get very far. I got an interview, and that was about it. I don't think I was ever seriously considered. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks before I applied for the Montreal job, uh, which was in 1968 when they announced the expansion to Kansas City, uh, I said I knew somebody in Kansas City and I sent an application there and I sent one to Montreal. And uh, in the meantime, I was also looking to get out of Richmond just for a change of scenery. And uh, I applied for the Tidewater Tides job, and I didn't get that. I got turned down on that, too. So in the span of about a year, I got turned down two major league jobs and a minor league job. And then a week after that, I got the call from John McHale to go to West Palm Beach, Florida, for an interview with him for the Montreal job, and I got that job. So uh, it was uh, it was a very exciting time. I remember spring training was underway, and they still had not hired the broadcasters, and I was knee-deep in college basketball, and we have the Southern Packers basketball tournament coming up, which uh, our station broadcast all of the games in that tournament, and uh, I was getting so close to that tournament time that I had to call Montreal, and uh, I said, look, I've got to tell my bosses something here, because uh, we've got the basketball tournament coming up, and uh, about two days after I made that call, uh, they called back and said, uh, you can tell your boss that you won't be able to do the tournament, but you'll be uh, uh, joining the Expos. Yeah, I you, that's that. <laughs> I got, that's how I got the news, and it was very exciting. Uh, I got off the phone, and I was almost in a state of shock, because uh, this was my ultimate dream to land a major league uh, broadcasting job, and uh, I got off the phone and sat there just staring off into space thinking, I've got it, uh, I'm going to do that. And when uh, April rolls around, I'll be broadcasting Major League Baseball, and it was very exciting and uh, and very uh, sobering at the same time because uh, I had a lot to, to think about and a lot to do to prepare myself for that first season. And once again, John Pielli here with longtime radio broadcaster Dave Van Horn. Now, what what was very interesting about getting the Montreal job is obviously this was Major League Baseball's first venture outside of the United States into Canada. You know, the first expansion team in Canada, of course, the Blue Jays came in 1977. Um, was what what was what was in in your mind? Was there any difference in in regards to approaching you know Major League Baseball from a broadcasting standpoint? Uh, you know, being at being outside the United States? Well, that, that didn't bother me so much as the fact that, uh, that uh, Montreal was already 
a very good baseball city. They, for years, uh, had the Montreal Royals there in the International League, one of the AAA clubs of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So this was an area that uh, knew baseball. They'd been without baseball for a few years, and now for the first time Major League Baseball was coming to Montreal. And I was very, very lucky in that my broadcast partner was a Montreal native, uh, Russ Taylor, who was hired to, to partner with me to do the games on, on radio. So I was able to break in beside a Montreal native, and he really paved the way, gave me a uh, uh, great education on the makeup of the city of Montreal, the province of Quebec, and the nation of Canada. So I was lucky to work alongside him, and he made the, uh, the switch from the United States into Canada very seamless for me. You know, and I tell you, you know, you end up, you know, establishing yourself there. You know, you're there for many years, and you know, over the course of time, yeah, absolutely, man. And of course, you know, you get the op- you get the opportunity to work for a little while with uh, Hall of Famer Duke Snyder. Uh, you know, how did how did you feel about having the opportunity to work with Duke, and you know, how did things work out between the two of you? I was always blessed with terrific partners up there on radio with Russ Taylor uh, and uh, on television. I didn't do television the first several years, but my first television partner was Don Drysdale. My second television partner was Pee Wee Reese, and my third television partner was Duke Snyder. So I was blessed with uh, three iconic names in baseball, and that covered about the first 17 or 18 years. Uh, that I did both radio and television up there in Montreal, where I spent 32 years. Duke and I were together about 15 years. Wow, and I tell you, you know, having you know, you know, just like you mentioned, you know, having a chance to work with Drysdale and Reese, and then you know, of course, Duke Snyder, it must have taken out any, uh, you know, any any nervousness that you had, and you know, I'm not assuming there was any at all, but what, whatever was in there probably made the transition into being a major league broadcaster pretty easy for you. Well, I never tried to uh, convince myself that I knew everything there was uh, about baseball, that's for sure, on a daily basis uh, or in in long term. But I knew I was working with people who knew this game inside and out. I gave you a very good comfort level working on the air with uh, those gentlemen because uh, we had a great time. I enjoyed my my year with uh, Dan Drysdale. I enjoyed my year with Wee. And uh, for 15 years with uh, Duke, it was just a, a wonderful experience. We got along terrifically right from the start and uh, never looked back. And we, uh, we're very proud of the work that we did in Montreal during those years. Man, I tell you, you know, you obviously go through some, some, you know, from the team's perspective, some ups and downs, some tough years, but also some very good years as you get into the late 70s and the early part of the 80s. And obviously, one thing that stands out was the opportunity you had to call uh, Dennis Martinez's perfect game on uh, July 28th of 1991. Take us back to that day and, you know, what it meant to you to be able to call such a game like that and, you know, pretty much the, the energy in the ballpark that day. Well, it was uh, it was really something because uh, the the Expos were in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium playing the Dodgers that day, and it was quite a weekend. On uh, Friday night, Mark Gardner, who's now the bullpen coach of the San Francisco Giants, Mark Gardner, a right-handed pitching for Montreal, uh, almost pitched a, a no-hitter uh, on Friday night. And then uh, on Sunday afternoon, Dennis pitched his perfect game. I had done no hitters before, uh, but this was really special because uh, Dodger Stadium, of course, steeped in great tradition uh, for all of those Dodger teams from the time they went west 
and of course the hallmark of those teams were the, the pitching of the, the great Sandy Koufax and, and Don Drysdale and Don Sutton and on and on, uh, the, the great Dodgers of uh, that era. So this was a, a facility, Dodger Stadium. Once again, John Pielli here with longtime Major League broadcaster Dave Van Horn. Now, you know, uh, towards the end of the, the 2000s, you know, you end up, uh, you know, the, the Montreal Expos end up having, you know, some different uh, switching networks and stuff like that. And it actually comes down to the one season, if I'm not mistaken, it was either 2000, it was 2000, right? We end up broadcasting the games on the Internet. It was the 2000 season. Uh uh, they had had trouble renewing their rights uh, negotiations with the uh, English uh, language broadcast station and the English language network, and the uh, ownership uh, made the decision uh, to play hardball and, and took the games off the air. And about 12, 15 days into that season, they decided that they would air all of the games on the Internet and I wound up broadcasting that final year that I spent in Montreal, the 2000 season, on the Internet the entire season. So that was uh, a first back then for Major League Baseball to have a team uh, with the team broadcaster uh, doing all of the games on the Internet and the Internet alone. So um, I suppose in a way I was uh, an Internet uh, broadcast pioneer to that extent as far as baseball was concerned. But that was my final year in Montreal, and uh, before that year was over, I had been contracted by the then uh, Florida Marlins uh, to come down here where I've lived uh, for a long time in South Florida, uh, to come down here and take over uh, the Marlins broadcast, and I did that in the 2001 season, was my first year there, won a world championship here in 2003, and uh, here heading into 2014. Yeah, I tell you, you know, you end up going obviously to the, you know, to the Marlins, and you've been a, a you know, major league baseball broadcaster for well over 40 years. 2011 comes, you know, you you get honored with something that, you know, was was, was certainly past due. Uh, you know, become the Ford C. Frick Award winner, um, you know, from the broadcaster wing in baseball's Hall of Fame. That must have been a special moment. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, being contacted about it, finding out that you're there, and then, uh, you know, participating in the ceremony. Well, I was a nominee for several years, John, uh, and, uh, and and uh, watched others uh, receive that Ford C. Brick Award. It's the highest award that can go to a Major League Baseball broadcaster, and so it was very thrilling when in uh, 2011 I got the call from the Hall of Fame that I was uh, going to be that year's uh, winner. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a tremendous thrill. It was very exciting for me and for my family. And for the Marlins franchise, uh, they had already had one Ford C. Brick Award winner down there, Fela Ramirez, who uh, is in his early 90s and is still broadcasting Marlins games uh, on the Spanish network. And Fela had been a, a winner some uh, eight or nine years prior. And uh, so the, the organization was extremely happy for me personally. It was uh, it was of course the, the crowning award for uh, a long career. And uh, not that my career is over. It's not this will be my 46th season broadcasting Major League Baseball in 2014. So, uh, But uh, it, it was a time I'll never forget. And a wonderful four-day uh, four weekend uh, in Cooperstown. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was an unforgettable time for 
for myself and certainly for my family. Yeah, no question about it. Now, Dave, of course, you've, you've had the opportunity to, you know, you obviously broadcasted Dennis Martinez's perfect game, the 2003 Marlins winning the World Series. What would you consider your greatest, uh, your, your greatest event you ever covered or, you know, the greatest moment for you as a broadcaster doing a live game? Well, the, the greatest moment uh, outside of the booth was, of course, uh, receiving the Ford C. Crick Award. Uh, in the booth, there, there were many. Not, uh, the first broadcast, uh, first major league broadcast, April 8, 1969, still remains as an absolute thrill. Ten days later, I broadcast my first major league uh, no-hitter when uh, Bill Stoneman pitched a no-hitter for Montreal at Philadelphia against the Phillies. And, uh, uh, that was uh, obviously a, a terrific thrill. But over the long haul, watching uh, the Montreal franchise build a wonderful farm system and then most of those homegrown players arriving at the major league level in the late 70s, 1979 in particular, and then on into the early 80s, seeing the fruition of that terrific farm system. Uh, and the, uh, the Expos were one of the winningest teams in baseball. Never won a division title, uh, but they were right there year after year, along with the Pirates and the Phillies and the Dodgers and the other contenders uh, in the National League. And uh, so that was a thrill, just watching that organization grow uh, as it did. Uh, uh, I would say... Certainly broadcasting three perfect games was also very exciting, the Dennis Martinez game, and then I broadcast David Cohn's perfect game against Montreal when he was pitching for the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, and I broadcast Roy Holiday's perfect game pitching for the Phillies against the Marlins in Miami. So uh, those three games, of course, stand out because the perfect game is so rare, but overall, of the 45 years, I would say just being able to watch the progress of young players uh, on the field, uh, from Hall of Famers like Gary Carter and Andre Dawson to uh, Vladimir Guerrero and Larry Walker, and over the years watching players like that uh, break into the big leagues and then establish themselves as big stars, uh, that's, that's the most rewarding and the most fun when you sit up in that broadcast booth day after day. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Dave, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. And, yeah, obviously, best of luck to your continued success in 2014 and beyond. John, I enjoyed talking to you. All the best. Happy holidays. Happy, too.